evening, <laughs> whenever you're listening to this. So welcome to the very first, the pilot episode, if you wish, of the Monkey See, Monkey Review podcast, Mm. which we will shorten down to the MSMR podcast, just for the sake of brevity. (laughs) Uh, So opposite me is MSMR's answer to Albus Dumbledore himself, (laughs) the magical uh, Mr. Christopher Commander. Good evening, Christopher. Good evening. And opposite me, as always, is the beauteous, wonderful, uh, serendipitous (laughs) Scott Harrison. Oh, thank you very much. You're most welcome. So uh, the idea of the MSMR podcast is to talk about films. We like films. We do. We hope you like films. That's why you're listening you to hope it. hope so. Or that you like us and you like curious <laughs> wanging on <laughs> about films. The idea of the podcast is we'll talk a little bit about some of the recent releases that we've seen. Not necessarily have to, They don't necessarily have to be recent. Uh, they could just be something that we've seen recently that mm-hmm. may be of interest to you. Something in the public eye, something maybe not in the public eye. Absolutely. We like to shine a light on things that might be just outside your peripheral vision when it comes to films that we think you might enjoy. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about something that's going on in the movie world that's of sizable interest and import. We also have a couple of features that we will be introducing, including our very first pitch battle. Pitch battle. Uh, We'll also be reintroducing uh, one of the concepts used on the MSMR page on Facebook, which is in defence of... Uh, which we'll be handing over to the lovely Mr. Commander later to mount his impassioned (laughs) defence of his chosen film. We'll also be introducing the MSMR playlist... Yes. Which uh, tracks of the trade? Indeed, think about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I tracks like of the trade. Tracks of the trade. I like <laughs> it. Rolling swiftly on, we're going to mount offence on the world of film. Hopefully, we're not too offensive. No, and not towards... too much mounting. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> we're going to start with some reviews. All right. And so, the first of our films that we'll be coming to is Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Uh, starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, the new Batman incumbent himself. Oh, yes. And, uh, the red Batman. <laughs> yes. The the Lighthouse is, I guess, follow-up to The Witch, or The Vivitch. Set in the late 19th century, it focuses on Pattinson's Ephraim Wilson, who is on his first assignment, Tending Lighthouse, with the elder and more experienced uh, Thomas Wake, who's the played by Willem Dafoe. The gruff seaman. The g- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, you have no idea how appropriate that, that <laughs> well, I, is. When it, for those of you listening at home, I have not seen the film yet, so this yes. is quite interesting. As you know, if you've read the MSMR site, you know I am very much anti-spoilers, so there will only mm. be so much... So far, I go into this when we we're talking about. If we do, plot we'll, give, we'll give you a spoiler warning. Absolutely. Do we have a klaxon? We can. Oh, brilliant! Well, um, <laughs> let's, let's klaxon it up. Uh, the film focuses on the Winslow character gradually as time elapses on the island and the backbreaking work that he is made to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, his sanity begins to slip slightly. Mm. And gradually the film descends and his sanity descends. What an interesting piece of cinema it really is. It's it's unlike anything that you all see this year. Right down to the, the visual style, it's a cropped 4.3 ratio, Classic. which gives the film a really... Kind of claustrophobic feel. Did you uh, see it in, in cinemas? I did. Wow, I did. that must be yeah. interesting to see four three in cinemas. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting experience. It does take some getting used to. You don't have the full field of vision right. that you'd be used to. Yeah. It brings it. It brings your focus right in. That's interesting. Uh, it's shot in black and white. Really kind of crisp black and white, and underpinned by two absolutely brilliant performances. Defoe's Thomas Wake is as salty a sea dog as, <laughs> <laughs> as you as you could come across. Absolutely, absolutely magnetic in the role. Cantankerous, mm. cranky, authoritarian against Pattinson's sort of quiet but, uh, but sort of broad, brooding Winslow. 
And Patterson's gotten a, a rough go of it he's, since Twilight, hasn't he? But he's done he some does, amazing work that people sort is, of ignore. This is the thing. He will, for some reason, he will be forever tarnished with the 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 stank, of, <laughs> stank <of> Twilight. Um, <laughs> but he makes some really interesting film choices now he does he and does he picks and chooses his projects really wisely he does and even if the films aren't necessarily a success his work's very indeed evident. absolutely and he's and the fact that he is going out and searching he's, he's much like Daniel Radcliffe in that way the, mm. the, the, the two of them both from a Harry Potter start yeah for example yeah 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 so um, they're using their cachet that they've created to they've got this, make some really interesting films. Absolutely, they've got uh, this. They've also got this really interesting creative uh, like drive. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is, I think, at the Old Vic at the moment or something, yeah. and he's doing something. And it, it's just, uh, it's nice to see people that when they started that young, they still have that absolutely. in them. And it's, it's yes, it's fun they, to watch. They would rather go for things that are interesting to them. Yes, yes, and challenging. Absolutely. And and Patterson's performance starts very still, very, Mm. very staid, uh, but develops into something absolutely phenomenal by the end of it. The film itself is, it's a whole big bucket of weird. What you're dealing with is, is somebody whose sanity is progressively losing its foothold. You know, there are, there are reasons behind that, Mm. which the film explores, and while it's happening, you start to have that what is going on here moment. Yeah, so um, I, I have a quick question. When you're viewing the film, are yeah. you viewing it kind of through Patterson's character's journey? Or are you seeing it as an observer to what he's dealing with? You are very close to him. Okay. You are one step removed from the, the Thomas Waite character. Okay. He is. He remains something of a mystery because you spend so much time with the mm. Patterson character. So you, so you see things very much through through his viewpoint. Gotcha, so gotcha. it question, it makes you question what's what's real, what's fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and it does all, by the end, kind of coalesce into a really sort of uncomfortable, ultimately a satisfying watch. Two really interesting points came out of it. I happened to stay to the end of the credits and there is a credit towards the end that all of the dialogue has been taken from transcripts of sailors and lighthouse keepers from around that time. That's incredible. Um, So what Eggers has done is create dialogue in these characters from these texts that he's found. So it's got real weight. Mm. it's, It's not just dramatic license creating these and there's some wonderfully florid speeches in there Wonderful. he does he does seem to have a, a slight obsession with the idea of getting those sort of details yeah. so precise and so correct like Absolutely. he did in The Witch um, and the other secondary point is without giving too much away it does answer the age old question of how one would have sex with a mermaid uh, so the, the Lighthouse it is a I don't think it will be for everybody. It will be the sort of film that I think it will divide people. I think I think some people will get a lot from it if they let the film take you on the journey that it's taking you. Because when you get to the end, it does, as I say, coalesce really satisfyingly. But in getting there, as a, as I'm aware that the witches did. Mm-hmm. That was yes. quite divisive for people. I yes. think I think the lighthouse will have a similar effect on people. But I I really appreciated it as as a piece of work. Brilliant. Moving on from the lighthouse, mm. and I wanted part way through the film because of the four point three ratio and because of the, uh, the very sort of nautical feel of it, and you know, serendipitously, it just happened. I happened to watch it on the same day that the uh, the film bait came out on Blu-ray. Now, as two two films that uh, use the phrase, mm-hmm. unlike anything you'll see mm-hmm. in cinema, Bait is a similar film. It's a tiny Cornish-based film uh, directed by a man by the name of Mark Jenkins. It's gone from you know, the humblest beginnings as a, as a film to 
winning Outstanding Debut at the BAFTAs this year, uh, which is a hell of an achievement. I had the opportunity to see Bates at the cinema last year. From the strong word of mouth, I actually went out and I sought it out. Now, the story of Bates focuses around escalating tensions between the established community in the Cornish town that was set and the the steady gentrification of people moving in from the cities, buying up the properties, opening up uh, holiday homes. What makes Bates such a unique experience is, again, filmed in the the 4.3 ratio, filmed on 16mm cameras and then hand-processed. And the thing with 16mm is it doesn't have the sound recording capabilities. Right. So what Jenkin has done is he's gone back and added every single sound effect and every piece of dialogue in ADR at the end of the process. So it's almost like an out-of-time experience. The dialogue feels disconnected. The sound effects are, 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 are that bit louder and more... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it feels, yeah, it feels a bit almost like an artifact from 50, 60 years ago yeah. when films were created in this way, where you, you're filming without sound, then adding the sound in later. From my experience watching Bait, I found it not difficult to get into, but it took a little while for the style to bed in. But again, it's one of those films that as the story develops and as the drama develops, you just find that it just kind of hooks you in and holds you there. And by the end of it, I found myself really engaged with it. I think that is in no small part, particularly to Edward Rowe, who is the central actor in it. Uh, he plays the, the main character of Martin, uh, the fisherman at the, at the centre of this kind of brewing war with this one family that starts over a parking space outside the house and snowballs from there. Simple um, beginnings. And it's... Uh, um, Rofe is a, is a Cornish stand-up comedian. He is absolutely brilliant. He's, he's gruff, he's, he's stubborn, but there's this... He's got this almost likability and magnetism about him. Even if you don't necessarily agree with him, you really find yourself drawn into it you follow that story you do absolutely that's That's amazing yeah so uh, so as as a double bill and if you're looking for something uh, really kind of unusual and out of the ordinary if you want a monochrome evening absolutely a monochrome (laughs) evening by the seaside Uh, I can't promise you it'll laugh right (laughs) (laughs) yes but check out The Lighthouse and Bait yeah so Lighthouse which should be able to find at some cinemas Bates should be available on all streaming services and is most definitely out on Blu-ray and DVD now. But if you are looking for a laugh riot, we, we have one more Blu-ray pick of the week, shall we say? Mm, I like that. It's not a uh, it's not a regular feature, but mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly worth it. Certainly, we worth. can do what we want. Absolutely, it's, don't judge us. Uh, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Going to talk a little bit about Ready or Not. Yay! Uh, yay! And I mean, what a what a fun film this is! That's very fun. So just out on DVD this week, uh, starring Samara Weaving, directed by Matt Battinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillett. It stars Samara Weaving as Grace, who is marrying into the Ladomus family, mm. or as the trailer uh, the trailer entails, that they they like to be called Dominion. The, oh, goodness. The, the Domas Dominion. <laughs> uh, they are a, a family uh, that uh, whose wealth has come as a result of the, the patriarch of the family uh, now yes. deceased. Because um, the the family made board games. It did, they did. They did. And so the um, the family tradition is when you join the family, the game box picks out a game for you to play, and whatever game that is. Once you've played that game, you are officially welcomed into the family. The one wrinkle in that is that if the game pulled out is hide and seek, uh, There's then nefarious consequences. Y- indeed, indeed, and wouldn't you know it? Ah, the card Grace pulls out is the hide and seek card. Yes, and then awkward <laughs> silence follows at the table. <laughs> indeed, what follows is. What can only be described as a wildly entertaining, grisly, very, very funny, very tense uh, game of cat and mouse. And 
it's well executed on, on all sides. It uh, is. It's fun to watch. It's fun to it's fun to follow the characters. You sort of get invested in 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 some of the couples Indeed. <laughs> in weird ways. Indeed. And I, I mean, at the centre of it all, Samara Weaven as Grace. It's a star making performance. I I personally felt I thought she was funny, had real charisma, didn't play the damsel in distress she she had no she was very yeah she was very grounded and real yeah she was panicky when she needed to be panicky Pan- yeah um, I mean it's all summed up without giving anything away at, at the end what you're left with it's a very sort of subdued subtle performance and yes uh, it's it, yeah, she carries that film in a, in a lovely way Absolutely. not saying the rest of the actors don't oh no it's all it's all a unit but yeah, she is exceptionally fun to fun to watch. And Absolutely, follow. As is Henry Cerny, who probably best known as uh, uh, Kittredge from Mission Impossible, as the the father figure of the family, who, who I just found great fun as the dad trying to keep it together. And this will probably roll on quite neatly into our next discussion. I, I really hope that Ready or Not becomes a bit of a cult classic, right down to the performance. And again, we talked about this prior to the podcast. What they they did with the Grace character and with sort of the costume design choices, actually, they've created something of an iconic female character. I would hope in Halloween's to come. We'll yeah, see I, I would dress up as hers as, yeah, on a Halloween. <laughs> absolutely, the the bridesmaid's dress, uh-huh. the bandolier of bullets, the shotgun. It's such a great look, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And it's it's interesting because because that that look is is very um, sort of gothic, hauntingy, kind of Victorian esque. Yes, um, and so it sort of harkens back to the idea of of traditions like that, and yeah. it's it's a very very clear image I, I watched it on the plane and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it I have to say I I, I saw it at the cinema naturally um, lucky and uh, yeah it's it's one of those ones that you know tiny screen huge screen it still retains its fun please make sure you check it out please and do smaller films like this that fly under the radar as much airtime as they can get because the more we pay attention to films like this the more interesting exciting stuff comes through the system uh, speaking of interesting stuff coming through the system mm. uh, shall we move on to uh, the, a film that we actually saw together together indeed yeah, yeah let's, talk, let's talk about the, the bird in the room <laughs> the, the, the elephant bird in the room the elephant bird in, what would an elephant bird in, would that, like Dumbo a, a toucan <laughs> yeah uh, uh, we are of course talking about birds of prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn or as it is now currently known as Harley Quinn birds of prey which doesn't score you as much on Scrabble but no <laughs> it's easy to say and if you get that on Scrabble you're cheating so birds of prey I think we were we were very much of a consensus when we came out of Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. Directed by Kathy Yan, produced by Margot Robbie. Yes. Written by Christina Hodson, whose last big movie was the wonderful Bumblebee, which it's absolutely criminal that that has made less money than all of the <laughs> other Transformers films. Uh, God damn you. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, great pedigree behind the camera and who do we have in the film so who do we have in the film we have of course we have the magnificent Margot Robbie yes, as Harley Quinn herself reprising the role from Suicide Squad we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later I'm sure we will we've uh, got uh, Rosie Perez as the uh, uh, 80s cop as they constantly <laughs> remind us in the film we've got Ewan McGregor as the uh the villain as in Black the Mask, yeah. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, always fun to watch. Absolutely, and she in, plays the huntress in a criminally underused. Yes, Mary Elizabeth yes. Winstead as huntress, and Jeanine Smollett Bell as Black Canary. It's a fun cast, I have to say. Performance-wise, largely there's a lot of fun to be had. I think my issues with Birds of Prey are around some of the the story elements I, th- I think it's quite baggy in places I think mm. there are there are stretches where it's it's really visual and really fun and then there are moments that maybe this is just me but I don't find the Harley Quinn character 
that engaging to spend time with. Let's let's talk about the fact that they tried so hard to <laughs> separate themselves from Jared Leto's Joker. Yes. So much so that they redesigned the Joker from Suicide yeah. Squad and what Harley thinks of in her mind. They talk about Ace Chemicals at one point mm-hmm. and uh, they have a little bit of a flashback scene and uh, you see possibly the back of Jared Leto's head. But for what we know, it could have been a stand-in when they I filmed think, that. I think probably think given... it was a stand-in? I think probably given Jared Leto's uh, response to particularly <laughs> uh, the Joker movie... Yes. To, to draw him back for one shot at the back of his head. Well, because I assumed, I assumed that was taken out of Suicide Squad. Potentially. I, but I, either I way, know. we did not see Jared Leto's face on screen at one point. Uh, Margot Robbie is throwing knives at a cartoon version of the Joker uh, just to remind us that this is the Joker that we want to be remembered for in this film <laughs> um, yeah it's interesting talking about the the look of this film and, mm. and uh, some pacing weird stuff going on I mean I know they played with time a bit talking about how to tell the story which didn't bother me that much in fact some of the punchlines were down to the fact of oh this happens simultaneously oh that's yeah. quite funny now she has yeah. to go out and do something yes I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think, I think structurally there there are issues. I think I think the way some of it was executed, there there was as I say a lot of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm giving the, my my biggest takeaway from Birds of Prey is Kathy Ann's direction. I think when it's on point, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. The visual style that she gives to it, uh, and the, the look and the vibe of it I think I think are really well done it was all it was definitely a copacetic look as opposed to what Suicide Squad was with the changing of (laughs) which just which was which was messy talking about the feel of the film I mean it it certainly sort of feels like it's trying to walk in the shadows of of what Deadpool started it does in terms of narrative structure it does I think I, I I think you're probably very very correct there Certainly, Birds of Prey is a, it's a hard 15. There is a lot of bad language. There is a lot of violence. And they are quite clearly looking to follow in the footsteps and hoping to emulate mm-hmm. the success of Deadpool. Not to, not to the same level of success, I have to say. I think, I, I think they're obviously... They, Harley feels almost at that fourth wall breaking, mm-hmm. anti-hero character. Yeah. But this, this is the difference. I think uh, Margot Robbie is a phenomenal actress. Yes. Um, I think she is eminently talented. But I just, and I go back to the point that I made earlier, I just don't enjoy spending time with the Harley Quinn character. She she has now embodied Harley Quinn. It's yeah. kind of, she she's going to go down like yeah. Arlene Sorkin, who did the, the, the original voice in the animated series. She's the, the Harley Quinn. Yeah. There was there's never a moment on screen that I think she's not Harley Quinn. Oh, no. I just don't necessarily like following Harley Quinn for an entire film. No, no, and I, I think that, I think that's part of the issue. And this goes back to the point I made, particularly around the the Huntress character. Yes, is once Huntress, all too late in the film, starts to get a bit of time to express her character. When it's dropped in little nuggets throughout the film, there's this running joke that's really quite nice. It is, it is it's lovely. A really, really nice. And it little it running made joke. us laugh in the, in the cinema when it yeah. when it came into fruition. It was good. And but once she starts to kind of the character starts to stretch her personality, mm-hmm. it's all too late in the film. You get to yeah. see a lot of her backstory, yeah. the reason, and and some things connect that you don't realize yeah. are part of her story as well. It made me want to know her story more than the story that I was currently following. Absolutely, and and strangely, if once you've got the five birds together, so you've got Harley, you've got Huntress, you've got Black Canary, you've got Renee Montoya, and you've got Cassandra Cain. Who I, I thought Ella J. Basco as Cassandra Cain was again, she was good. She, uh, yeah, she, she was. I mean, she, yeah. She was. Uh, yeah. She was. She was okay. That, for yeah. my personal preference, she was okay. She yeah, did she her was job. All right. she, she was. She was the container for the MacGuffin of the film. Yeah. But I thought once the five of them got together, and you saw that interplay rather than them individually, mm-hmm. 
I don't know if this is a controversial opinion Ooh. about 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 the Harley character because it was tempering her and it was giving her something to play off of. Um, it it helped her as well. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I mean, the other the other part of this story to talk about is who is under the red hood. I, sorry, black mask. The black mask. Um, oh. Do you get my reference there? Come on, everyone. Um, it is 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 none other than none other than the fantabulous <laughs> uh, Ewan McGregor. Uh, who, did, you, who did you choose that word on purpose? Uh, maybe. <laughs> But what's interesting about his character is as much as I love watching Ewan McGregor basically in anything he does, I did come away from it sort of going, he hates Harley because she she broke the driver's legs. She doesn't like her very much. I I couldn't quite get behind. She's a woman. Do you just hate her because she's a woman? Which is is kind of an underlying thread of this film a little bit. Don't think that they fully fleshed out that what I took from that is that because she's been under Joker's protection and now they've split up and that's and that's really one of the key thrusts of the film is now she's not under Joker's protection anymore she's on her own everybody is out to get Harley and can she make it on her own they make the point that her and the the Roman scientist Mm -hmm. character have clashed and do clash, and now the fact that she is an irritant, and he has a short fuse, and now it is now the opportunity that he could probably do away with Harley Quinn. Yeah, I, and I think ah, it's tough. It's tough. It is because it is. just bar her from the club. <laughs> well, we established early on that he is a sadistic yes. man. Yes, and he's, um, yeah, he's not. He doesn't quite. He doesn't like the women folk much. He doesn't like many folk much. That's also but true. All, but, but it's, it's, yeah, it's very, it's there, very skewed to one side. Yes, there, there is a there is a really awkward, uncomfortable uh, sequence. We're um, thinking the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is that, without without giving too much away. There's a there's a scene in the club that happens. Yeah. He sort of he embarrasses m- embarrasses um, and manipulates, and uh, just because he can. Um, and, and it, it was uncomfortable, and I understand that that was the point of the scene. But something about it wasn't just uncomfortable in terms of, as an audience member, it was uncomfortable going, this is an interesting storytelling moment that you want to do right now. Yeah. Was it made just to make him seem even more... It's hard to tell. Of a, of a, as a reprehensible character. Or was there something deeper to it? Who knows? Uh, and then we have uh, next to him, uh, Victor Zaz, of course. Oh, yes. Uh, played by uh, Chris Messina. Yes. I'm very familiar with the comics. I'm yeah. very familiar with Victor Zaz. There have been beautiful, wonderful performances of Victor Zaz uh, in the past. And um, this this one irked me in a way that I didn't think it would. I, I kind of okay. got over it in a way. Yeah. It's only because his character generally, from the comics, I know this is, you know, put taking a portrayal and putting it on, on something else. It's kind of clear from the film, excuse me if I'm wrong or if, if we disagree on this, that they are basically together. They are basically a couple in this film. It's it's kind of... He's it's, this puppy it's heavily, dog... He's heavily, it's heavily implied. I wonder whether it's more one way. Zaz towards scientists than it does Absolutely. reciprocal. But, and I think that's what bugged me more about it was the fact that Victor Zaz is this sadistic psychopath and he yeah. cuts his skin every time he, he kills a person. And he's yeah. like this mercenary and, and it felt just like it was like, oh, okay, now he's a pet. Like he didn't feel like he himself had the sustenance. He was doing it for the sake of his love. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that was just me. Nothing against Chris who played it. Mm-hmm. He played that specific version of Zaz very well. It was very clear that that's that's yeah. what they were going for. Uh, what what else to, what else to say about Birds of Prey? I just think, I think it's I think it's a noble attempt. I yes. think it does enough things right to make it at least worth checking out. The big story coming out of it, and we alluded to it with the the change of the title, is the fact mm. that actually. Compared to some of the other DC uh, films that have been released, Birds of Prey has underperformed. Uh, yes, it's not been the success. I think the I think their initial low estimate was around the forty five million dollar mark for the opening weekend. It took barely thirty million, which was 
something of a disappointment. Compare and contrast that with the heavily maligned Sonic the Hedgehog movie, oh. which has taken in excess of 70 million last weekend, which weirdly has been getting better audience word of mouth than critics. That's interesting. Yeah. Although Ben Schwartz, I love to yeah. just watch. Um, so anyway, yes. back, to, back to Birds of Prey. So since that opening weekend... Is steadily making money. It's uh, I think it's now regarded as a disappointment. It's not a flat out mm-hmm. bomb. Mm-hmm. What's been the catalyst for that? Uh, you know, did they did they maybe pick the wrong weekend for it? Coming in with the Oscars weekend. Yeah, that's true. Because largely it did it did get sort of middling to good reviews. I could personally I. I could take or leave the the promotional campaign. I didn't think the trailer hooked me at all. Seeing another Harley Quinn film didn't fill me with joy. And I wonder whether there's mm. an element of that about mm. it. That there are people that have been burned by the Suicide Squad. Yeah. You, you know, you do have, you know, it's a hard R film. It's a 15 rated film. So there are people sort of in the, the, the lower age bracket that maybe wouldn't get to go and see this that would be engaged with the Harley yeah, Quinn that's, that's We talked about this before we started, that, that it's it's marketed to a weird... Or yeah. like what's its what's its target audience? Yeah. And it feels like they've tried so hard to do sort of the Deadpool thing yeah. and have this hard R rating that their actual target audience wasn't even that. Their target yeah. audience would have gone and seen the film if they'd been allowed to and they'd had less swears in it. Yeah, indeed. Um, less face peeling. Less face peeling, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I um, my little qualms about it, I had little stuff that I said when we came out of the cinema. Mm. They didn't need to beat us over the head with some of the jokes. They should let the audience yeah. make those connections. Absolutely. But when it, com- when it comes down to it, I... I don't know if there was there was a single character that I was fully invested in. I, yeah. I, Huntress was interesting to me, but I also knew that it wasn't her film, and I knew I wasn't going to get that. I yeah. wasn't going to get her film from this. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was a it was a fun romp through through a universe that I'm personally finding more interesting following the side stories than the current DC storyline, apart from. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Woman, who will be, which will be coming out soon, which I'm very excited about. And see, so this is this is. I'm glad you've said that because this is one of the big comparisons that uh, a fair bit of doomy naysayers around the whole idea of this um, this female-led superhero blockbuster. And is that you know shortchanging it when you've got within the last two years? Wonder Woman, which made a sizable amount of money and was ninety percent brilliant, ten percent CGI overload <laughs> at the end, um, yeah, and a but, little ten percent story. Yeah. But end. anchored by a really great, uh, really great central performance by yeah. Gal Gadot and really great support right throughout the cast. Uh, it was a very solid film, absolutely solid film. And then you have Captain Marvel making all of the money. And I, you know, I'll hold my hand up and say that as as a film, it had its moments. It was entertaining, but it was. I'm with you of, on this. It, it was, was a bit... middling. It was middling Marvel. I'm a fan of the the MCU. I make no bones about the fact. I'm not one of these tiresome DC versus Marvel bores. And this is. I'm gonna. I will bring the tangent back round mm. full circle. I'm not a fan of the early DC. I didn't. I didn't have any love for Batman versus Superman. Really didn't like Suicide Squad, stupid Cara Delevingne with the arm <laughs> dance. Um, if you've seen it, you'll know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Wonder Woman came out, and it was this breath of fresh air. And then Justice League came out, and we'll forget about that. Yeah. Um, Aquaman, which was big dumb fun. It was um, big dumb fun. It and- was ridiculous. And there were points that I was shaking my head and there were points that I was grinning. Yep, I yep. don't have any massive love for it, but it's a it's a passable film. And the sa- and the same with Shazam. And Shazam, Shazam was so much just so much fun. So fun. <laughs> I've 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 in fact I've now seen Shazam three times and I enjoy it every time. I think Zachary Levy's just great in the central character. I think it's got real heart to it as well. And that's this feels like the point mm. that it's moving away from this Justice League-centric shared universe that they're, they're going off and telling their own stories. Uh, the Joker, again, I'm not all the way up with the, the Hi-Fi Star reviews. I think it's a very good film, 
with a just a brilliant performance from yeah. probably my favourite actor working today. I'm not invested in DC in the same way as some people. I will go and watch a film and judge it on its own merits. And this is the thing. When you bring it back round to Wonder Woman, 1984 coming out later this year, and you compare and contrast the, the, the publicity between the two, Birds of Prey kind of dropped out this trailer. Then you have this, this absolutely banging trailer come out and I, I, I'm a big fan of the trailer mostly because of that absolutely superb cover version of Blue Monday we're talking about the new Wonder Woman the new Wonder Woman 1984 trailer and, that, and that's the thing I, you, you all get the the, the doomy male naysayers going I just go sit up it's a woman it's a, it's a woman it, we don't want to go see woman films but you've, you've but actually I'm really excited for Wonder oh. Woman 1984 I yep. think um, I think there's some good pedigree and I thought Patty Jenkins did a great job with the first one and I think she'll do a great job with the second one. So But to wrap that up I think yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think I think the idea of, of the films that we've we've enjoyed the most mm. are the films with, with heart, not just this cookie cutter yeah. idea of a film yeah. that's like, okay, here's a message we are trying to send to our audience Absolutely. rather than this is from the heart and it doesn't matter yeah. what you think, this is how I feel, yeah. rather than this I'm trying to make my audience feel something. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good point because, you know, Shazam had heart, Wonder Woman had heart, Joker had a shriveled black dead heart but yeah. my god it, it definitely had one yes um, whereas you look at Suicide Squad which was really kind of style over substance and then Batman vs mm-hmm. Superman which was I just found unpleasant I just found it difficult to get through Man of Steel film of two halves I, th- I find the, I get a lot of mileage out of the first half it's the second half when you hit the CGI sort of wreckathon and where they try and destroy everything and once they've destroyed everything they go up into space to find something else to destroy <laughs> to come back to Earth to destroy, to destroy it some again. more. Yeah. yeah. I think we've spent think a we lot have. of time deconstructing the DCEU. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's really interesting to do that in the context of Birds of Prey where yes. we come from where we're at at the moment and with possibly it. where we're going it felt like the in-between of what Deadpool yeah. was and maybe what could happen maybe later on yeah. something could it did sort of half feel like a, a first draft like oh we've got this idea we can sort of steal some of these yeah. ideas and we'll make our own but it will you be... know what it was a fun romp absolutely and as a final point it will be really really interesting next year when we get the reboot of the Suicide the Suicide the Squad, suicide squad. You can chart my level of interest in this. That <laughs> we're, going to do another, we're going to do another Suicide Squad film. Mm. Oh dear. It's going to be a reboot. Oh, brilliant. Mm. It's going to be directed by James Gunn. Take my money. <laughs> I'm in. Um, because I, I I just think he's... Uh, oh, he knows yeah, what he's doing. He knows he what knows he's doing. doing. And I, I, think, I think he will be able to take the criminal anti-hero um, and... It, he knows how to do you know we know he's done that so well with Guardians yes I'm interested to see where it goes and I think how it links into Birds of Prey and moving forward will be really interesting so uh, I have oh, yeah. I have weird cautious optimism yes for that. Um, we, will, we will find out we will in, find out in summer 2021 <laughs> dun 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 okay yeah. so uh, that is it we've talked about Birds of Prey so next on the agenda what is it, Scott? Um, Do you tell her. So, um, I would really like to wrap up uh, the reviews bit um, to talk a little bit about uh, the first Oscar-winning foreign-language film to win Best Picture. Let's do it. Uh, we're talking about the absolutely magnificent... Uh, that's a little bit of a spoiler for how this review is going to go. Parasite. Parasite. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, so I got the chance to see Parasite literally the day of the Oscars. And I walked out of that film and I said, if Parasite or 1917 wins, that is the best case scenario. I thought There's it hope was... for the Oscars yet. <laughs> I thought, yes, yeah. Um, Parasite is uh, a Korean language film. Uh, set in Seoul, uh, it was released to massive acclaim around the world last year. Finally got a release February of this year. Bong Joon-ho made a comment that people need to start getting over 
the one inch tall barrier of subtitles mm-hmm. and enjoy films for what they are. I couldn't agree more when it comes. I mean, some of my some of my favourite films I, are subtitled. Um, some of the, they're some of the ones that have flown under the radar. And hopefully, in future episodes, we'll come back and we'll revisit Ooh, a few of those. There's a teaser for you. Absolutely. So the story is, and this is one of those films, and I cannot implore you enough. If you are looking to watch Parasite, go in knowing as little as possible. Because part of the real joy is the fact that it doesn't go the way you expect it. So the the, the basis of the story is the family is living in a semi-basement apartment and borderline poverty. They're stealing uh, Wi-Fi from neighbours' businesses to be able to use their phones, to be able to get jobs. When the son, uh, Kiru, is given the opportunity by his friend to go and fill in as uh, an English tutor for the wealthy Park family, even though he has no specific qualifications, Brilliant. they manage to find a way to get him into the household. And he starts to see the opportunity within the house to bring the rest of the family in. First half of the film, it plays out almost like a, almost like a heist movie. Meticulously plotted, very, very witty, very clever. It's this joy in the first half of the film that of kind of watching these slightly unscrupulous characters inveigle their way into this household. Nobody really within the film is particularly unlikable. The Park family, the the rich family, they all have their own challenges, they all have their own things, but they're kind of cushioned from the poverty aspect of it and they don't they don't fully understand whereas the the Kims they are, you know, deep in it and living you know, at the breadline, and so it tells a really interesting story over the, over the course of the film about class war that that's going on, even without it really being noticed. I really don't want to talk too much more about it, simply for the fact that if I do talk too much detail about it, I will drop a hint. I'll give mm-hmm. something away, but it's find out for yourselves. Absolutely, if you get an opportunity to go and see Parasite. I've almost played it off as if it's quite an entertaining film. It's got some real dark corners um, and says really, uh, really interesting things about about humans, about how humans experience different sides of poverty and how they react. Oh, there's there's a thick black streak of, of humour in it as well. Uh, some really, some really great moments. Please check it out. It's great performances directed to within an inch of its life. It's so it's so tight. It's so well crafted. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely can't recommend Parasite enough. Um, I'm just glad it's got the attention that it deserves with uh, with the Oscar win. That brings us to the end of the review section. I'd now like to try an audio version of my in defence of section that ran to a grand total of one article good uh which was the star wars holiday special <laughs> um, <laughs> that's brilliant brilliant it's one of my it's one of the my favorite things that i've written um the idea of in defense of is to take either something that is either universally maligned or whether it's something that something that is largely maligned but you have a lot of love for hmm. uh, and between the two of us what we're going to do is each week we're going to come in with our own film to defend, whether it's something that uh, that we want to we want to pick the good out of, or whether we want to just impassionately say, "Employ no, you to watch yeah. the good bits in it." Absolutely, because nobody goes into making a film a bad film. Everybody goes into making a good film. Everybody wants to to create something positive to tell a story somewhere along the way something happens whether that's uh whether that's production problems whether that's script problems or whether it's just the film doesn't work in the edit and Mm -hmm. uh, for, for whatever reason in light of that hard work that people put into it what we'd like to do is just try and find the good stuff that we can find within films that are generally maligned and chris God bless his heart. He's going to he's going to start us off with 
I'm going to start us off with the 2015 film Pan, uh, directed by Joe Wright. And it is based off the beloved J.M. Barry's Peter and Wendy. Acts as sort of a prequel to the Peter Pan that we know, starring Levi Miller as the, the titular Peter Pan, uh, Hugh Jackman as sort of the basically the villain of the film, uh, Blackbeard, not Hook, uh, Amanda Seyfried, and uh, Clara Delevingne is in it as a mermaid, which is always fun to watch. Uh, she's floating around. Uh, so just a couple of little things. Uh, the production cost was about uh, 150 million, uh, and it made around uh, 129 million. So technically a box office failure in terms of budget and oh also apparently the cost of marketing was upwards of 100 million so wow well (laughs) there we go okay so let's talk about the film itself let's just start out by saying that the world building in this film is just absolute insanity uh the trip to neverland would make dr strange want to settle down in barbados um so (laughs) some of the scenery though in this world is absolutely stunning it's just some of it is just beautiful to look at and now we also have to talk about over the top stuff so let's talk about the over the top performance of Hugh Jackman in this film as Blackbeard and with with that in tow um and all the way through uh the Nirvana cover that's in the film we do get a a a true glimpse of his of his character from time to time and as we say in acting, he earns his pauses, Hugh Jackman does. Uh, there's a scene in which Blackbeard confronts Peter about his intentions, about being in Neverland. And to watch him treat Levi as an actor and not just a child, and it creates a moment in this film which is just wonderful to watch, just purely for the acting. There's a few bits of exposition in the film, and they make that incredibly entertaining, not just by having characters talk at you, they do it in a very visual way. It's a very, very visual film. It's got hints here and there to to the fantastic 1991 hook with with the late robin williams and so something about the film uh, innately feels familiar there's something that feels connected to this sort of idea we do have of, of pan it was uh, it was nominated for a razzie but lost so <laughs> there's that <laughs> but when it comes down to it i mean it's um it's it's a, it's a fun little film and it's uh it's it has moments in it that, that, that make it just, just a good film to watch. Watch the film and, and have your own opinions of it. I have, I have tried my best to, uh, to, to shed some light on some of the, the good parts about the film. And yeah, that's, that's in defense of. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And, my pleasure. Uh, so Pan with a uh, Rotten Tomato score of 27%. So uh, Pan is not just a euphemism <laughs> for its critical reaction. <laughs> One thing I do have to ask you about the film, though, because um, because it's a prequel, mm-hmm. uh, there is also the Garrett Hedlund character. Yes, in there. he plays he plays Hook. You get to see Pan basically befriend Hook throughout the film. Mm. They become quite good friends, and, and in fact, the climb one of the big climaxes of the film is Peter Pan is Peter learning how to fly, and um, that's also a nice pull away from what we believe the sort of Disney Peter Pan of think happy thoughts. Um, it's sort of a pull away from that and it's, it's, a, it's a message to the people watching it of, of believe in yourself is really what it comes down to. Um, and he takes this literal and figurative leap of faith at the end of the film to save Hook. So it sets up this really interesting dynamic of what, what would their relationship be knowing the end result of the rivals that they become? Uh, how does that play out in this universe and one thing because it's one thing that really fascinates me it's one thing we might come back to in future episodes does it lay the foundations for a potential sequel or is it very much a standalone because i've not seen pan i i think it does Mm -hmm. and i think i think that is one of its downfalls it wasn't just trying to tell one story it was trying to start maybe a new franchise maybe three films i mean there was the peter pan in in 2003 that felt more of a standalone film than this does it does especially with the the hook and you get to see smee in it as well and they're sort of um it does feel like that they were trying to pave the way for more of the story uh, which would have been interesting to see um there it's 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 sort of got this steampunky kind of feel to it yeah 
There are some things that are very jarring, like the Nirvana song that yeah. smells like Team Spirits in there for some weird reason. But yeah, it's uh, watch it, see what see what you think. Yeah. Look, at, look at it with a, a fresh eye. As with all of Maybe these two. films, yes. As with all these films, you know, we give our own opinion. Uh, it's up to you to go and discover them, and you may discover something you love. You mm-hmm. may disagree wholeheartedly and uh, give uh, Chris lots of abuse online for that. Oh, we please don't, do. Please we, do. Don't, uh, we, don't, we don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> but as with all these things, go, discover. Yes. And, uh, and, and one extra thing uh, that just reminded me about, about things about this film. The, uh, the, the soundtrack is beautiful. There's a, there's a beautiful soundtrack. There are two songs from Lily Allen in it that are, that are, that are just beautiful to listen to. Anyway, that's Fantastic. it. Fantastic. And uh, funny you should talk about soundtracks because we might be talking about that a bit later. I think so too. Okay, Scott, introduce this next segment. <laughs> okay, so we're trying something out a little bit different this time. And, and so welcome to the very first round of Pitch Battle. Battle. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, we toned well. I yes, think. thank you. Um, so, before we started <laughs> filming, uh, or filming, recording, before we started recording, uh, we came up with the concept that what we would do is uh, we would be given uh, five minutes to uh, create a movie pitch uh, based upon three items. Now, we'd like to give a big thank, uh, thank you to a very, very close friend of mine, Mr. Craig Woodfield, who came back to us with three items. So the first item was an actress. Uh, he went for Charlie's Theron. Our second item was a yoga mat. And our third item was a genre, uh, which he said a chiller. And so, without further ado, we've just spent five <laughs> minutes, a strict five minutes, Ooh. to come up with our our film pitch, which we will now deliver in our best movie trailer voice guy voice. Sounds good. So, Christopher. Yes. Would you like to go first or second? Oof. I'll go first. Okay. So let's see. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> let's get ready to rumble. <clears throat> We've all seen her, walking through the LA streets at night, coming from a late night yoga session, yoga mat in hand. But this evening is different. She's picked up the wrong mat. She must return to the studio. It is locked. Upstairs, the light is on. The owner must be home. She rings the bell. The light goes out. Silence. Across the road, a cat shrieks. The door of the studio opens. As she creeps inside the empty dark room, a single light is on, spotlighting her yoga mat, torn to shreds, and standing over it, the one person she didn't expect. This summer, Charlie's Theron in Nama Stay Here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's what okay. my brain can come up with in four I, minutes and 57 seconds. I can't promise mine will be any better. <laughs> okay, mine is a little shorter, uh, but mine goes hard on the title pun as well. So. Nice, good. <laughs> okay, so. From the company that bought you too many conjuring spin-offs, when Daisy moves into a new apartment block, she finds the previous tenant's yoga mat. When using it in class, she discovers that when she lays on it, she could commune with the dead. <laughs> but has she released a malevolent force into her life? And was this force what caused her predecessors to disappear? Coming this Halloween, Charlie's the Ron in The Unwelcome Mat. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well I guess I guess I guess <laughs> chime off in the comments which which film you want to start a, a GoFundMe page for. <laughs> I, I I will I will write I will write the hell out of either of those films. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was good fun. I have to admit, oh, that was thank a you lot very of fun. much. Okay, so we're going to come to the end of the very very first MSMR podcast. Yes, um, I've really enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. So, um, what we thought we'd do as our closing gambit every week is do something a little bit interactive with you all. Mm. So. Uh, the idea is that we're going to create our very first MSMR playlist. The name of which, what was the... It was called Tracks of the Trade. Tracks of the Trade. So, 
I particularly, uh, and I think Chris agree me, mm-hmm. will agree with me on this, um, I absolutely love movie soundtracks um, and I love discovering new pieces of movie scores. We're going to, each week, bring a track from a movie score that we both particularly like, um, that we both particularly have an affinity for. Uh, we're going to find a way to basically create our own Spotify playlist mm-hmm. that we will be able to share with you, dear listener. Yeah. So, in the hope that this isn't a one-off and we end up with a playlist of two songs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if not, listen to them over and over Absolutely. I will go create your own. Uh, you are more than welcome uh, in the comments uh, to suggest ones for us to listen to. Uh, main rule is, when we talk about a, uh, a track on a score, we are talking about uh, the theme music. We're talking about not necessarily songs that you particularly like on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So no giving us, uh, it must have been love from Pretty Woman, uh, nothing from the Grease soundtrack, and <laughs> nothing from any Disney song. We may find out at some point that we break our own rules, because I would really like the theme from Shaft to go on the list somewhere. <laughs> um, but largely what we're looking for is to discover beautiful, exciting, exhilarating pieces of score music uh, that we'll be able to lift and develop. We're going to slightly break our own rules on the first one because I think we can both agree that it's an, a phenomenal piece of music and works within the MO of finding beautiful, exhilarating pieces of music that are really evocative. Uh, so Chris, we're yes. going to lead off with yours. Okay. So the first track on the tracks of the trade are... It is called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. And it is technically from his second album called The Blue Notebooks. Um, and I was introduced to it first through uh, the Martin Scorsese film uh, Shutter Island. It is this beautifully kind of haunting, melodious quite repetitive but it, it it sort of drags you along this 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 beauteous journey it's it can be used emotionally it can be used sort of happy this it's it's a wide um very interpretive piece and it's just it's just a beautiful listen um and and it was funny because when we were talking about doing this uh we both came up with the same one when we were talking about it so yeah, uh, I was introduced to it through Shatter Island. It's uh, it's in um, a bunch of other films. Yes, so I was first introduced to this through probably my favourite film of the last five years, which was uh, The Magnificent Arrival. And if you've seen Arrival, you will know the piece of music as soon as you hear it. Uh, it underscores the absolutely heartbreaking opening sequence yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, yeah. Uh, if you have seen it, you'll understand why we went silent there. Yes. Uh, uh, if you haven't seen it, I can only urge you to go and watch it because, as as a whole film, it is just this fantastic, heartbreaking, beautiful, smart piece of sci-fi, um, and uh, basically. Anything that Denis Villeneuve makes, I'm I'm there on the first day because I just think I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. And this, as Chris says, it's it's such a wonderfully evocative piece of music. Uh, although I find that I can't always make it all the way through it because mm, because of because of that sequence. Um, mm. Because it's it's truly you know it's a heartbreaking heartbreaking thing, but the music works so perfectly yeah. with it. Yeah. For mine. I've gone with something of a classic uh, from 2010's Inception, from the Don Hans Zimmer, and Ah. I've gone with Time. It underscores the closing sequence of the film, and it's one of these pieces of music that just builds and builds and builds, and... Again, it's so moving. It's it's exhilarating. It it should be used on every film ever because it's just <laughs> I it it it's probably one of my favourite pieces of uh, music. Not just film score music, but just music. I think it's a really lovely pulse pounding piece mm. of piece of music, and it's just as good listening to the recorded version as it is. Uh, there are live versions available. Uh, that, that Hans Zimmer has done on his many tours and I, I can't recommend listening to it enough so I think that brings us quite neatly 
to, to the end. Yes. So almost like the end dun, dun, dun. of Inception, <laughs> we're just going to leave the, the the totem of movies there spinning. Nice, and, nice. And will will it carry on or will it end after this <laughs> after this debacle? <laughs> you decide. Yes. Um, all I want to say is on behalf of myself. And myself. And Christopher is to say <laughs> thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for taking this time out of your day to let us into your ear holes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I became vaguely aware, slightly confessional moment now. Things have gone very quiet on the MSMR page because of you know, life gets in the way and finding it hard to, to find the... The, the, the ability to write so having an outlet like this where I can continue to communicate my love of film and be able to do it with uh, a, a fantastic friend like Chris um, oh, is alright <laughs> uh, no but it's likewise, it, likewise. Yeah, it's a really it's um, hopefully you'll get something from this hopefully it will kick me back into writing some more yeah um, but uh, yeah here's to you and uh, hopefully we'll see you again with another Monkey See, Monkey Review podcast.